Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. I have a great show for you today, as I have invited one of the most transportation-y transportation experts in the entire country. I know that transportation-y is not really a word, but uh, I think it'll work in this context. Robert Poole will be along in just a minute. Bob has a bio that is full of transportation expertise. It would take me five minutes at least to read through all of his experience. Uh, Bob is a director of transportation policy and Cyril Freedom Trust Transportation Fellow at the Reason Foundation. He's responsible for one of the major changes in the way we all commute. His 1988 policy paper, proposing privately financed toll lanes to relieve congestion, directly inspired California's private tollway law, and that authorized for toll projects in California. And more than 20 other states in the federal government have since enacted similar public-private partnership legislation. And so he was basically the father of the toll lanes. In 1993, he oversaw a study that coined the term HOT lanes, or hot lanes, high-occupancy toll lanes, a term which has been widely used since. He also is highly used for his expertise about congestion pricing and managed lanes. Bob Poole is the co-founder of the Reason Foundation. He's the author of a first-ever book of privatization of highways called Cutting Back City Hall, published back in 1980. And Bob has written hundreds of articles, papers, and policy studies on privatization and transportation issues. He has a master's in mechanical engineering at MIT. So, yeah, he's uh, pretty smart. We'll connect with uh, Bob Poole in just a minute. But first, what person in Tennessee hasn't wanted to steal a Walmart mobility scooter and drive it down the highway to get coffee? Dateline, Crossville, Tennessee. Sally Selby. No relation to my wife's family, as far as I know. They are the Selbys as well. Anyway, Sally caught the attention of law enforcement around 5 a.m. while driving a Walmart motorized shopping cart in the slow lane of Highway 172. At least she had the smarts to stay in the slow lane. Sally originally told officers that she was on her way to a Waffle House to buy a cup of coffee. I can totally see that. I love the Waffle House. Waffle House is great. And I like their coffee, too. It's pretty good. Actually, interesting story. It was a, a Christmas party years and years ago. I actually bought, I don't know, about 25 of those mugs from Waffle House, and I gave them away uh, to the staff, as uh, to all the people on the morning show, as, as a Christmas gift. Uh, anyway, the 45-year-old woman initially told officers that she built the scooter, but was later arrested for theft after Walmart employees confirmed it did belong to the store, and she was not a builder of scooters. Walmart surveillance video showed Miss Selby using the shopping scooter inside the store before driving out of the parking lot and then down the highway over to the Waffle House. Look, I can understand the draw of fresh, hot waffles at 5 in the morning, so I get why Sally wanted to drive over to the Waffle House. Makes me hungry thinking about getting some hash browns that are scattered, covered, top chunked. The only unanswered question here is if she is friends with the wine in the Pringles can lady, who was also caught misusing a Walmart mobility scooter. And if not, maybe we should get these two together because that's a match made in Walmart heaven right there. All right, with that behind us, it's time to talk transportation. And I think most of us can agree that our transportation system is not working as great as it could be. So maybe it's time for a change in the way we think about how transportation is managed and funded. What about this for an idea? What if we treated our highways 
the same way we treat our public utilities, like we do for electricity or water or natural gas? What if the highways were maintained and run commercially instead of governmentally? These are some of the interesting ideas from Bob Poole. Bob is the co-founder and currently serving as the Director of Transportation Policy for the Reason Foundation. And he's also the author of this book published last year. It's called Rethinking America's Highways, a 21st Century Vision for Better Infrastructure. And Mr. Poole joins me here to talk more about these things and much, much more. Bob, thanks for carving out a nice chunk of time to be here on the Driving Your Crazy podcast. Very glad to be here, Jason. So, Bob, before we start talking about your suggested change to the way we manage mm-hmm. roads, you're really the father of the express lanes, the toll managed lanes, the high occupancy toll lanes. How do you think your child is doing after 30 years? After 30 years, uh, since I wrote the initial paper uh, in 1988 uh, calling for the idea, I think it's doing very well. We have 42 uh, variably priced express toll lanes in operation around the country today, all of them, of course, in, in, in large urban areas with the big congestion problems, and a lot more in the planning stages or under construction. So it's, it's one of the things I'm most satisfied about in my, in my long career is uh, having made this idea uh, come up with it and uh, helped DOTs in various states uh, actually get it implemented. Now, we here in Colorado, we're express lane happy right now. Late this year, we should have a new three-lane highway with express lanes down on the south side of Metro Denver. There are several more in the works on the south side of town between here and Colorado Springs up to the north towards Cheyenne. And, of course, the controversial I-70 Central Project that's actually going to cap the interstate with a park. I I know you've looked at this I-70 project. What are your impressions of it? Well, I'm I'm very pleased with that project. I actually have an illustration of it in my book because I think the idea. Uh, I mean, we uh, the the highway program when interstates went through cities in the 1960s and 70s, they they really wrecked a lot of neighborhoods. I mean, uh, the original plan that uh, had, uh, the federal government had come up with in the 1940s didn't have interstates going through the middle of cities. And uh, they were to basically go between metro areas and uh, would have maybe beltways around the edge. But uh, in order to get enough support in Congress, uh, uh, get the mayors on board to get enough votes to create the interstate program, they had to add an urban component. And the mayors were all, you know, they loved the idea of federally uh, government spending 90% of the, covering 90% of the cost of building modern expressways in their cities. So uh, then nobody reckoned then with the, the damage to the neighborhood. So the idea of, of uh, putting decks, decks of lids, parks over uh, congested interstates that are in urban areas, I think is a great one, and it's been done. There's a little discussion in my book about there's, there's you know, at least about a dozen of these around the country in, in places like Dallas, Seattle, and elsewhere. St. Louis has, has one. Um, it's an idea that could do a lot more to uh, help make urban areas better places to live with still the needed transportation being there. You know what's interesting about that project specifically is that right after the project, there were a lot of lawsuits before the project started. The neighborhood was actually trying to stop it because there's some Mm -hmm. uniqueness to at least this one with a Superfund site that was being cleaned up, some drainage issues. But right after the project started, we're, we're talking like a week or two, yeah. Property values already started going up. Wow. <laughs> it, it was quite interesting to see that this yeah. one highway project can actually start to revitalize the neighborhood, as you say, that was going to connect the two sides of the highway back together. Right, right. And I think having that be a park uh, uh, really uh, adds a lot. I mean, there will be vegetation. <laughs> People can walk and bike across it. 
and it'll be a whole new dawn for that area. But it is costing a lot of money. It's over a billion dollars, uh, and, and a lot of the money's coming from the federal government, some from the state and even city governments to do it. Right. So is, is it worth it for a billion plus dollars to, to do these kind of projects? Well, that's, that's always the question, these things, and you really have to look pretty carefully at what all the impacts are going to be. Uh, I think probably the combination of the mobility improvements and the the improvements to the to the area as a rec- I mean, property value increase and so forth that you just mentioned uh, it probably is worth it but you know every project you really have to do a careful analysis so uh, you know one of the problems we have in transportation in this, the United States today is that uh, there's no uh, mandatory built-in uh, requirement that before a billion-dollar scale project gets approved, it has to pass muster as, as a, uh, a good investment uh, with benefits uh, being clearly greater than the cost. And uh, so, you know, if you do, if you spend a lot of money on projects whose benefits are a lot less than the cost, you're wasting scarce dollars. We, we all know there's not enough uh, infrastructure money to go around. Uh, so it's really important to try to target those dollars on the projects that create the most value. And that project is right along a very highly trucked corridor, at least for Colorado, to get goods and services in and out of here. Now, the way that DOT, at least here in Colorado, has sold the public on the express lanes is that the department is basically out of money. We here in Colorado <laughs> twice last uh, election, there were two ballot measures, the public voted on two separate measures, one that was arranged for bonds, another one was going to be a sales tax, and the public said, we don't want to have that and fund transportation this way. And so the only way the, the DOT here basically says, since we're out of money, we can build lanes is to make it managed lanes. But yes, looking at exactly. the revenue generated from these tolls, the money really basically just pays for the maintenance. So it's more to well, me... Well, not, not, no, that's, that's, that's not quite right, Jason. I um, mean, we have uh, 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 most of the... Uh, uh, if you put a managed, uh, managed lane capacity into a very congested uh, uh, highway, um, the, the toll revenues, the way what we're finding now um, from a lot of them are covering a, a significant amount of the capital costs of building the, the managed lanes themselves. Now, it's not going to cover, if you take that whole I-70 uh, central project, um, you're going to be rebuilding all the lanes. And the toll revenues just from the managed lanes is not going to cover all of that billion-dollar total cost. But uh, uh, if, if you look just at, a, at adding managed lanes to a, to a highway, like there's a project in I-66 uh, uh, in the in Virginia, outside the Capitol Beltway, they're adding uh, two managed lanes in each direction over about 20 miles. That's an over $3 billion project. And yet, in that project, the, the, the toll revenues are going to cover the entire cost of that project. That is such a congested corridor. that And a private company, uh, under a long-term uh, uh, toll agreement, uh, uh, is covering the entire cost and actually uh, giving the state some additional money to uh, start expanded express bus service in the corridor once those uh, congested lanes are in operation. Well, anecdotally, here uh, in Denver, we have a Highway 36 corridor between Denver and Boulder, and that managed lane, yeah, they, they have a public-private partnership, mm-hmm. and they use the toll money to basically, as as I've seen the figures, it's basically covering the maintenance for that lane, even though that money was used to help build the and rebuild the entire highway from Boulder right. down to I-25. So I guess it depends on which highway you're talking about. And yes, yes, yes. And yes, it could build maybe just a separate lane that is separate from the rest of the that interchange or uh, corridor, 
but those corridors have to be rebuilt to accommodate the new managed lane. Yes, you usually do have to do at least some rebuilding. And so uh, the the, uh, the Capitol Beltway in northern Virginia, uh, outside of uh, you know Washington, D.C., the part that's in Virginia, that's uh, I-495, uh, was basically all rebuilt and, uh, and, and has uh, two express toll lanes in each direction, managed lanes. And the revenue from that is covering about two-thirds of the total cost of doing that uh, reconstruction. Uh, which is pretty remarkable. The state got, got put in about 20 or 25 percent of, of the total. The, the feds, they got a, a, a low-cost federal loan for part of it. But, of course, that has to be paid back out of the toll revenues. Uh, that's another long-term public-private partnership. And so we are seeing it, it's a mixed thing. It depends really very much on the specifics of the, how much reconstruction, how many new uh, uh, over, you know, Roads, uh, surface streets that have to cross over on, on, on widened bridges because the roadway is now wider and so forth. Um, so you can't, you can't completely generalize, generalize, but we have a spectrum from only maintenance to uh, 100% of the capital cost in rare cases. Uh, so uh, it's, it's, it's quite exciting to see uh, uh, how some of these projects are turning out uh, uh, better than, than most DOTs expected. Now, now, the pushback that I hear, and I'm sure you've heard it as well, about these tolled managed lanes is not necessarily that tolled highways are, are the worst thing in the world, but that we're already paying for these roads, and now you want me right. to pay for it again. And yes. even though you and I understand that you, yeah. you have the option to drive in the lane or not drive in the lane, you could still drive in the free lanes. Right. So there right. are advantages of managed lanes, even to the drivers who will never, ever, ever pay to use one. Yeah, exactly, because because every vehicle uh, whose driver decides on a particular day it's worth paying the toll for this particular trip gets out of the regular lanes and frees up space uh, and makes them makes the regular lanes less congested. So there's a benefit to the people who never use them, uh, in addition to the benefits to every day to the people who do use them. But this seems like an argument that's never, ever going away as long <laughs> no, as we have not. two congruent ways of paying for roads. Right, right. And uh, uh, so part of the message of my book in, in that we really need a, a new commercial-type uh, business model for highways uh, is that uh, we eventually should be paying for all roads through per-mile charges of some sort. Now, I did not in the book try to work that out for local streets and roads. That's a, a bigger challenge, and, and uh, uh, there's a number of, of uh, slightly federally funded small pilot projects in various states looking at how to, how to implement mileage-based user fees that would eventually replace per-gallon fuel taxes. And there's a good reason to do that if we could figure out how to, how to make it affordable uh, to do that and, and, and fair and so forth. And that is that uh, fuel taxes are, as you know, are charged per gallon, not per mile. Uh, and uh, over the last 30 years, cars now, because uh, of federal fuel economy standards, go twice as far on a gallon of gas. So that uh, if the gas tax rates haven't been changed, um, and if the if, if the total amount of driving doesn't go up, unfortunately it's been going up historically. Uh, but you can see what happens to the revenue. Uh, you go twice as far on a gallon of gas, but you're still paying, uh, you know, 20 cents a gallon on in tax, and that money uh, uh, you don't get anywhere near as much revenue. And if you look at projections going forward, the current in-place federal fuel economy requirements for new new vehicles, new cars, and SUVs will require an average of 54.5 miles per gallon as of 2025. Now, the Trump administration is trying to cut scale that back. May or may not happen. But uh, right now, that's the law. And if you do projections going forward, and I'm sure Colorado DOT has done them too, 
you'll find in 20 years, uh, as, uh, as those new vehicles getting the much better miles per gallon replace the ones that are too old and people, you know, sell them, scrap them, they're not in the fleet any longer, uh, fuel tax revenue is going to be cut in half uh, by 2040. Under, uh, and this is only with a very modest projection of electric vehicles into the fleet. And electric vehicles, of course, pay no gas taxes because they don't use gas. Except for mine, which is a Chevy Volt, where I'm paying a little bit of gas taxes because I run half and half on gas okay, and, right, and right. electric. Right. Uh, we're speaking with Bob Poole, the Director of Transportation Policy at the Reason Foundation. And in your book called Rethinking America's Highways, a 21st Century Vision for Better Infrastructure, you argue that the network of roads should really be run more like a utility, like how we get our water or power or natural gas. Let's first talk about the reason why before we get into the nuts yes, and bolts of okay. exactly how that would work. All right. The reason why is, and I, uh, this is the starting premise of the book, is that our system we've used for 100 years since the gas tax was invented uh, is, uh, is really failing. I started doing transportation policy, as, I, as we said, 30 years ago, and all the major problems that I saw then are still with us. Massive traffic congestion. Now, we're making a dent in that with express, uh, you know, managed, managed lanes, but it's worse today, much worse today than it was 30 years ago. $160 billion a year in just wasted time and, and wasted fuel from people sitting in stop and go every day. So that's one problem. Another problem is we have this ongoing problem of deficient bridges. There are 44,000 structurally deficient bridges across the United States, and several times that of what are we call functionally obsolete. They don't have enough lanes even for today's traffic, let alone the traffic they'll be bearing in 20 or 30 or 40 years. So that's another problem. We also have deferred maintenance, which means that uh, you know we're not... Overall, in this country, we're not properly maintaining the roads uh, and potholes in urban areas or urban streets and roads is a big symptom of that. And people don't realize what potholes cost, but in typical American city, small, medium city, several hundred dollars a year in additional repairs uh, and uh, and faster depreciation of the vehicle. In, in Los Angeles and, and San Francisco, it's close to $800, $900 a year. And, you know, these are costs that... You know, if if your electric utility were delivering that kind of poor performance, where you were having uh, brownouts or blackouts every day, yeah. and when people turn on their air conditioners at five o'clock because it's going to be too hot, uh, you'd be outraged. And, and people are just so complacent; they say, "Oh well, that's just the way it is." Well, I say, no, it shouldn't be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. And if we ran the highways, at least the major highways more like our electric utilities or even the, even the government water department, which still sends you a bill, charges you for exactly what you use. It's completely transparent uh, and uses all the money for the capital and operating costs of that infrastructure. I think that is a much better system. And, and the public-private, the long-term public-private partnership with tolls as the revenue source is a sort of a preview of, of what this could be like. Uh, if we generalize that model in various ways that I, that I talk about in the book. So how, how do we get there? Because right now, <laughs> that the, is the exactly, yeah. the government is running it. So how do we take it back yes, from yes. them, which they never want to give up power, and, no, give it to, and give it to, let's say, a transportation utility? All right, we'll say the, tro the Trojan horse for this, if you will, yeah. uh, is the long-term public-private partnership. Uh, we have a need for uh, rebuilding our aging interstate highways, for addressing uh, congestion on urban uh, expressways with uh, uh, adding expensive uh, managed lanes. 
So if there's a need that can best be satisfied by introducing this new business model, which Colorado DOT has at least tried uh, and may use for it, well, it's using it, a version of it on the Central 70 Project, too, which is the biggest one. Um, that is a way to get people starting to see that this works better, uh, that it's more transparent. You know exactly what you're paying for and what you're getting for it. Um, the provider is held accountable to deliver the results that were promised, and so on and so forth. That can be, then lead, I hope, and I have a whole two chapters in the book about how to uh, uh, rebuild, rethink and rebuild urban expressways uh, using this model and to rebuild, basically replace the long-distance interstates that the trucking industry in particular depends, depends critically on. Uh, as ways to get that ball rolling, and and uh, it'll be trial and error. Uh, we we only we have 36 billion dollars worth of of public-private partnership highway investment in projects that already are are financed and and in operation. That sounds like a big number, but against the scale of trillions of dollars of of unmet needs, it's a drop in the bucket. Uh, but we have the experience to show that it works. The other thing, Jason, is that this model. Uh, has a long history overseas uh, in France, Spain, Italy, and Portugal. All the major highways are toll motorways done by investor-owned companies on long-term franchises, long-term P3 agreements, basically public partnerships. And this has been going on since the 1960s in those countries, and there's a wealth of knowledge and experience gained uh, that's mostly positive in those countries. Uh, all over South America, uh, two-lane highways between cities um, that are you know, pretty, you know, like 1950s kind of highways in the United States, uh, are being rebuilt as modern uh, uh, toll roads by private companies, competitively selected under long-term, uh, these long-term franchises, long-term agreements are very much like the electric utility franchises. You may not realize it, but investor-owned electric utilities. Um, don't have a permanent uh, engagement to do business. They typically have a franchise between 50 and 99 years. And uh, so they're held accountable, in their case, by a, a, a public utility commission that uh, Mike tries to micromanage them, and that's not a good solution. We tried that only once in the United States with a, a public-private partnership uh, toll road in Virginia, and uh, the the regulatory thing has turned out to be a, a, a political circus. No. And so the the model used in Europe and South America and Australia is that the equivalent of the state DOT signs this long term contractual agreement that spells out performance requirements, penalties, and things like that. And so the DOT becomes the regulator, but, the mechanism of that long-term contract. The pro the difference between European countries, South American countries, and the United States is that, for the most part, Americans are much more protective and avid to protect their privacy than they I maybe in, true, in some true. of the other places. So you're you're talking about having to to collect data on how many miles I am driving. So let's say I have a transponder in the car. Well, right. then you might know where I'm driving, and I don't want you to see that I'm driving over here to the bar at 2 a.m. No, you're absolutely right, Jason. <clears throat> that need, Privacy protection is an integral part of this, and uh, there needs to be uh, rules, regulations, saying that uh, you know the use of this, this information is not available 
uh, through the media. It's not available to divorce lawyers. It's not available for all. It's available for for you know basic law enforcement um, uh, under certain specific conditions. And this this is evolving in the United States. Uh, uh, you know we have the in the the East and Midwest. Uh, there's the Easy Pass system that has lets people have one account with one transponder to use toll uh, roads and bridges in, uh, in, I think it's 15 or 16 states right now. And uh, um, there are privacy rules. Now, the, the rules are state-based, and so uh, uh, we don't have uniformity on those privacy rules yet. But this is a problem that, that everybody in transportation knows. We need to uh, make sure that, that privacy is protected or these kinds of things are not going to be accepted. Do you think the public is ready for a transportation utility-style system? Uh, probably not today, no. <laughs> I mean, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to, to get the idea to be discussed uh, in academia, to have it be discussed by, by governors and mayors and legislators and transportation commissions and so forth, and to, uh, if they haven't started looking at using long-term public-private partnerships with, with toll financing, uh, they should start trying it. I was just in Louisiana where they have legislation to allow this kind of thing, but have never used it. And uh, uh, they have several uh, billion-dollar scale bridge replacements on Interstate 10. Uh, one of them is a signature bridge across the Mississippi River that was built about 60 years ago and is uh, very much in need of replacement. They don't have billion-dollar scale money to put into projects, so they're actually there's a chance that they will uh, adopt uh, adapt their you know their public-private partnership law to finance uh, one or more of those uh, needed projects. So I think the idea of, of a need for big new investment where there isn't really the money to do it is what's probably going to drive uh, uh, states to uh, start using these ideas, start trying them out, and presumably. Presuming that they work well, then uh, I think this will expand and become more more common, especially as states start coping with the need to re- basically replace their aging interstate highways. I'm speaking with Bob Poole, the director of transportation policy at the Reason Foundation, and about his book called Rethinking America's Highways, a 21st Century Vision for Better Infrastructure. You just mentioned that there are places that already have some laws that are designed to get at least close to this, but do you think there's really a city, a county, a state willing just to say, all right, we're all in, let's give this a shot and see what happens. No, it's, it's, way, it's too early for that, Jason. I mean, I, w- I would love to see that, but I think uh, given the, the limited amount of knowledge about this, uh, I think the danger of a state going all in right now uh, would be that they'd really mess it up and it would set the whole idea back. Uh, so I think the, the trial and error approach, uh, starting with uh, projects like Central 70 in, in Colorado and, and the I-66 uh, outside the Beltway in Virginia and places uh, things like that, they're re- completely redoing 20 miles of Interstate 4 through downtown Orlando, uh, adding uh, uh, two express toll lanes each direction. Uh, that, that's about a, a $2.5 billion project. Uh, things like that that people can say, well, this yeah, there's a lot of disruption and so forth when it's under construction, but it's going to be so much better when we have it. And uh, much of the cost uh, uh, will be uh, re- recouped from people who decide willingly to pay the tolls on the managed lanes for the trips that uh, that make sense for them to pay for. So where does transit 
bus, rail, bikes fit into this new transportation utility. You know, I talked to uh, AAA last week, and they actually indicated they they are a for a, a similar pro, uh, uh, way of collecting money for roads, a, a road tax, if you will. And they even suggested collecting tax money from bike riders. <laughs> I've heard that. Actually, I think Oregon passed a law, Oregon of all places, uh, uh, last year or the year before, to put a modest annual uh, 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 registration fee, basically, on, on bicycles. Um, and, you know, since the bicycle community really wants a lot more um, infrastructure, uh, bike trails, uh, you know, bike, uh, bike lanes and so forth, um, these things are not free. They, they cost money, and right now uh, most, the only expense most bicycle riders have is, is to buy the bike and, and, and keep it in good shape. But if they really want uh, dedicated infrastructure, I mean, I think it's only fair that that in some they pay something uh, toward that. But I mean, I think let, let, you talked about transit, and let, let's address that for for a moment. We've done a lot of work at Reason Foundation, some of which I talk about in the book, looking at uh, uh, particularly at light rail transit as uh, uh, whether that is a good investment or not. And uh, in all the studies we've done. Uh, we uh, have come to the conclusion, not not happily, but reluctantly, that um, this does not produce the real bang for the buck. Um, it costs; it's very, very expensive to build. Um, it has not in in all the metro areas around the country where uh, light rail uh, projects have been added in the last uh, 25 years or so. Um, there's only two or three that have a slight increase in the fraction of people that uh, use transit rather than driving for, for various trips. The large majority, almost all of these uh, metro areas, have a lower fraction of particularly commuters getting to work via transit of any form today than they did before in the, you know, the decades ago when, uh, before they uh, uh, put a lot of money into light rail. By contrast, I think the uh, the most promising uh, uh, form of, of transit improvement right now is bus rapid transit, especially where it can use uncongested lanes, uh, such as either an exclusive bus lane in selected cases, or if you have managed lanes on, on an expressway, a freeway, um, and can keep the traffic flowing at rush hour at 45 miles per hour or higher, um, the bus can really be a much better form of of, of transportation than was ever possible before. But and people I, think trains are cooler to ride on than a bus. I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> That's very Even true. Me, I, you know, I, I don't know why. Right, I just right. rather be on a train than a bus. Yeah. Well, you know for sure. I mean, if if you're especially if you're not really familiar with the transit system, um, it it feels like a crapshoot to get on a bus uh, if you don't really know the routes and the system. Uh, whereas the train, you know, there's a map that shows you exactly where it goes. Um, you, if you have you know information on your phone, you know when the next one is going to arrive, and and so on and so forth. So it seems uh, more user friendly to to most people. But express bus, uh, particularly on on uh, on dedicated or uncongested lanes, can operate much more like that uh, than regular city buses that people are used to. And so uh, uh, let me tell you a little story about that. I, I helped Florida DOT uh, produce the first managed lanes in Florida, which was seven miles on I-95 uh, uh, in, in and near downtown Miami. It was an absolute parking lot like, you know, that you see every day at rush hour. 
and uh, they got him in, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, former carpool lane was converted, and they managed to narrow the regular lane, so there's now two uh, managed lanes in each direction on, on that stretch, and it's later been extended far, much farther north. But in the first uh, five years or so, it was only that seven-mile stretch, which was the most congested, and the uh, uh, express bus service that goes from um, the suburbs uh, north of Miami in, in Fort Lauderdale area to downtown Miami quadrupled its ridership in those five years because of the uh, uh, uncongested travel on the managed lanes. And the county to the around Fort Lauderdale had to uh, build, I think, two or three new park and ride lots because the demand was increasing so fast for because the bus uh, was now uh, a much cheaper alternative uh, uh, than paying the variable toll every day on the managed lanes. But it was also much faster than driving in the regular lanes. And the regular lanes were doing better than before because of the cars that shifted over to the managed lanes each day. But they were still a lot slower than than, uh, cars in the managed lanes. And the buses could keep pace with 45 or 50 miles per hour in the managed lanes. So that became a much better and more reliable means of commuting than it ever had been before. Now, I, I've always said that people are a lot like water. They'll find the path of least resistance. Yes. And, and like you say, you, as long as somebody has a option, and that, that's always what I've advocated is options, whether it's a bus or a train or your bike yeah. or your feet or your car, as long as it's con- convenient and less expensive option for you, then the people will be uh, drawn to that option. So uh, how much better would commuting be if we use this transportation utility system and used more managed lanes? Well, I think the uh, the transportation utility would be uh, accountable to, to to customers and, and would have goals of, of uh, really getting uh, the freeways uh, uh, as, as, as free-flowing as possible uh, within the limits of, of what people are willing to pay for, you know, of, of capacity expansion. And uh, and what they're willing to pay for on managed lanes, uh, and whether there would be uh, an increase in investment by the uh, the transit agency or agencies in the, in that particular metro area to take advantage of a whole network of of price managed lanes, and they, really that's that's what I mean. My my uh, near term near term meaning the next fifteen or twenty years solution for uh, urban congestion is a complete network. Of, uh, of price managed lanes on what is now the freeway system, um, and and this p- big part of that in many metro areas can be converting the existing uh, HOV or carpool lanes, uh, but in some quarters you really need either uh, two reversible uh, managed lanes, uh, depending on how the traffic flows, or uh, two in each direction, and uh, so that's going to usually involve adding expensive capacity, and and that's a matter of how much can you actually finance based on projected toll revenues. Uh, but this is what's happening. Uh, the long-range plans of uh, about a dozen of large metro areas in the United States already have the the long-term goal of a of a complete network of of managed lanes, and I think this is going to make a big difference not only for giving uh, car drivers an option. Uh, uh, you know, every day, uh, if they have a trip that uh, is worth paying for to bypass the the congestion on the regular lanes, uh, it's there for them, also for emergency vehicles, but also a huge boon to to the transit system, making a region-wide 
uh, express bus system uh, quite feasible uh, to do. Before we transition in just a second to the future of transportation, I have one last question uh, in this field. We're speaking with Bob Poole, the Director of Transportation Policy at the Reason Foundation. Most people want to know, bottom line, what am I going to pay? The fee structure of transportation with the utility versus right now what Mm -hmm. I'm paying with, if I added up all the money that I'm spending with the gas tax, my vehicle registration fees that are different, obviously, in every state, license taxes, all the income taxes, property taxes, sales taxes. I'm paying all these taxes already uh, for my my car and for the roads. So is this going to be then distributed differently with the utility than it is right now? Oh, and well, for, because because you know how government loves to collect yes, taxes yes. and not give them back to you. Uh, will I then see that money eventually go to transportation and not diverted to some other pet project by the okay. uh, by the legislatures? Right, right. Well, first of all, my model calls for it being highway utilities, not transportation utilities, because highways can be self-supporting from per mile charges, whereas transit in the forms that we know it cannot possibly be and has to be funded uh, by some form of taxes. But my goal is, is to have these all be transparent. And uh, uh, so for highway users, uh, uh, people would get a highway bill that would be based on how many miles they drove on each type of facility. Then why wouldn't I uh, want to just drive on all side streets and avoid the highways if I'm not going to pay extra money? Well, for you might, but there would also, in that, in that longer-term vision, there would be a charge, a per-mile charge for the side streets as well, um, which, would, which would be lower. I mean, the experiments, the pilot projects that are going on right now in, in a number of particularly western states, but a few in the east also, are typically charging between two and two and a half cents per mile. For uh, for using ordinary roads, um, now everybody realizes that uh, the big ticket items, uh, the interstates and, and expressways, uh, the the charge for those would have to be higher because the costs of building and maintaining them are a lot higher than ordinary streets and roads. In the study that that I cite in in the book that uh, that I did at Reason Foundation in 2012. Uh, a nationwide analysis of what it would cost to rebuild and modernize the interstate highway system, urban and rural, uh, and uh, how feasible this would be to finance with uh, per-mile tolls. I used 3.5 cents per mile as the starting uh, toll. Uh, this is in $2010 for uh, the uh, basic interstates uh, this would be the the long distance ones, the rural ones between cities, and that would be I, the way I did the model. It had an annual inflation adjustment based on the consumer price index, and so that turned out to be for the large majority of states uh, that, with trucks incidentally paying four times that rate per mile, fourteen cents a mile, um, that turned out to look like it was financially feasible to pay for constru- reconstruction and widening of the rural interstates. Now, the charges, uh, I, I assumed that uh, urban interstates would have a basic uh, peak period charge uh, uh, somewhere in the uh, four to four to seven cents per mile during peak periods, and a, a more modest, something like the three and a half cents a mile charge uh, during non-peak hours. But there would also be variably priced managed lanes uh, for trips that are really uh, time critical and that need the more almost guaranteed faster times. So it's not outrageous. I mean, those are those numbers are in the ballpark of toll rates of urban and rural toll rates 
that are being charged today. Um, you know, look at, at E470 and other urban toll roads in Dallas and Houston and in Orange County, California. Um, so I was not talking about outrageous increases in, in what those tolls are. So it's a question of, of uh, you know, what people are used to. People are, are not, they don't have any idea what, what they're paying now uh, for highways. I did, in the book, I have a comparison table looking at what people pay in, in 2010. Average per household electricity bill uh, was $107. Telephones, 102 Natural gas, 83 And for highways, uh, this was the average state uh, fuel tax plus the federal fuel tax. I didn't include registration fees because I didn't have the data readily available. Highways was only $46 a month per household, uh, which is it was the smallest of any utility. And people don't have any idea that that's how little they're paying for highways um, out of out of uh, federal and state gas taxes. And at least here uh, in Colorado, and I'm sure it's the same way in other states, the registration fee for your vehicle here, it's based on the ownership tax, which can be quite high. Newer yes, vehicles yes. Can, can go up to 1000 or $1,200 that you're paying for your vehicle registration. But not all of that money is then cut out to go directly to transportation. It's actually exactly. going to other things. That's right, and, and that, that's that's part of the problem is is that there's so little transparency in highways compared to all the other utilities. People don't have any idea what they're paying and where the money goes. Whereas with the utility model, it would all go for the capital and operating costs of the highway utility, just like it does for the electric utilities, the water utilities, the natural gas utilities, and so forth. Now. We're going to transition from that into the future because we're really on the edge of a data yeah. revolution. We, we're starting to see 5G, and it's going to eventually replace 4G when it becomes more widespread, when people start getting those uh, phones and, and starts connecting to cars. It's really going to be, I think, a dramatic advancement in transportation. So, so that being said, in the next five or ten years, when 5G is really widely used mm-hmm. and, and, and saturated just about every part of our society, are we trying to solve the problems of today without thinking about how we're going to get around and how it's going to be dramatically different in 20 years or even 10 years due to 5G and other technology changes? It really ways that we can't even predict right now. No, that's that's very true. And, and uh, uh, autonomous vehicles is definitely part of a very big part of that, as well as, as uh, the market penetration of all electric vehicles uh, uh, you know, ones that don't use any gas, um, it's going to transform transportation. And uh, the, the only question that, that people are don't have a good handle on is how fast the various uh, things uh, come into, into being. Now, 5G looks like it's going to be here very soon. Um, one of the implications uh, of, of 5G, I think, that, that has not really been discussed is that it may, uh, uh, this problem of uh, uh, how are you going to charge uh, people for for highway fees? Um, you know, when there's millions and mil- you know, hundred millions of uh, drivers and so forth. Um, this is seen by some people as just this phenomenal, uh, complicated and costly endeavor. But I think with with five G, uh, uh, it would be very easy to have this be just a, a another uh, service uh, that is billed to your Mastercard, um, and uh, you know, you get. You get an electronic bill. It could show up as a separate uh, bill, or it could be just a, a lump sum on your Mastercard or Visa bill. Um, it would be 
very, very low cost uh, uh, to do the economies of scale, uh, and that would be enormous. And, and so I think this, this may help ease the, the, the concern over how would we ever organize and manage uh, payment per mile for all of our streets, roads, and highways. Because I could see the 5G, really, because the latency is so low, because yes. it is so fast, and it's uh, 10 times ta- faster than the fast internet I already have in my home, and I and I could get that in my car, that the cars are right. then talking right. to each other, and they're starting to regulate how close I can get to each other. And, and, I, and I've always said... You always have to manage the gap, the gap between vehicles as you're driving down the interstate. If right. you don't break right. the gap, you will have free-flowing traffic forever at, at 5 miles an hour or 500 miles an hour, as long as you don't break the gap. Yes, and, that's it, true. And, and I think with 5G, we could start to see some of those improvements, and then maybe if we start getting the panicky humans off of the wheel, <laughs> right. we, we right. could maybe start to see some improvements in traffic flow, even with the current configuration of the highways we have now. Yes. No. People are starting to do serious modeling of, of these effects, and and uh, uh, with, for example, there's something called cooperative adaptive cruise control, where the cars uh, can communicate uh, uh, with each other and and maintain uh, you know a safe vehicle spacing at different speeds, and this is going to be uh, this is going to make possible truck platooning, where uh, a platoon of five trucks can uh, uh, operate only 50 feet apart instead of whatever the 200 or more is required in state law now, uh, and they'd be within the uh, uh, the air drag of the one ahead, and there's five to ten percent fuel savings from that. Uh, uh, so there's advances like that, for example, that could come. But one of the problems with vehicle automation uh, uh, is that uh, we are going to have a mixed fleet for uh, quite a while. Uh, new cars uh, will have all kinds of things. They'll have uh, various levels of autonomy and communications. But uh, the fleet turnover uh, is is something that we are going to have to cope with, uh, unless unless the new vehicles that have all these wonderful features are less expensive than current vehicles. Most people are not going to rush out and scrap their one year old or two year old or four year old car to to buy a new one with all these great capabilities. So uh, the historical uh, average time that people uh, keep a car has been going higher, more you know, more years before they trade it in or, or scrap it, uh, and the overall fleet to, to replace about 95% of the vehicle of old vehicles with new vehicles takes about 20 years. Now, maybe that will change, but the historical pattern has not changed very much over over many many decades, and so that is a big question mark for how fast a lot of these benefits will, will come about. Right, and I think I, I have two daughters, 7-year-old and 10-year-old, and, and I've talked to them, and I don't believe that my children's children, my grandchildren, eventual grandchildren, will ever learn to drive a car. That could well be. That That's a very possible future, uh, and and uh, uh, this would be true uh, with once we have full vehicle automation that, that's safe and reliable. Um, there's also the question of will they own a car, uh, or will mobility of service, uh, mobility as a, as a service, uh, be so ubiquitous? You know, uh, it would be like uh, like Uber or Lyft, but with with no expense of a driver. So you would just summon a vehicle of the kind that you need whenever you want it. Now that fair, sounds fairly utopian today, and I don't think uh, we're going to see that in in 15 years even. But it, eventually, that capability will be there, and the question is, uh, uh, will people uh, st- 
still want to own a vehicle and have it uh, has the exact capabilities that they picked, you know, whether it's an SUV type vehicle or this or that, or trust in in various market suppliers to uh, provide on very short notice um, the kind of vehicle they need at that particular time for whatever they want to do with it. And uh, there's, that's a huge question mark hanging over the auto industry, hanging over the providers, uh, the developers of vehicle automation, uh, and companies like, like Lyft that just went public and Uber that's planning to go public. They are certainly hoping that automation will be uh, uh, here in a very reliable form and affordable form within the next five to ten years. I think that's probably over-optimistic, but because uh, their business model uh, could do amazingly bigger uh, things if they didn't have the expensive drivers. But that's the same time frame that I'm saving money to buy a 1961 Corvette convertible. And, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and that, that will never be autonomous, and you don't right, want to right. drive no, that I autonomously. Know. <laughs> so I think we're always going to have something of a mixed fleet. And, and if I had the money, I would buy a Raymond Lowy 53 Studebaker. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Very uh-huh. nice. We uh, didn't talk yet about the Hyperloop. What are your feelings and impressions of a Hyperloop system? Um, I think it's a, it's a very interesting idea. When I was a mechanical engineering student at MIT many, many years ago, uh, we had a project uh, that uh, had us analyzing for the Northeast Corridor in the United States, Boston to Washington, a uh, system with evacuated tubes and linear induction motor uh, uh, propulsion, Basically, hyper. So it's not a brand new idea, even though Elon Musk thinks he invented it. Um, I have uh, I've seen a few presentations, and I'm I'm not persuaded that uh, that the economics are there. Uh, it's a cool idea, and if if I'm wrong, uh, it be, could be a great thing, uh, a much faster way of getting between cities. Uh, than, than we can do now. It, it certainly might uh, uh, reduce uh, uh, at least short to medium haul airline uh, uh, flights. Uh, it would be an intriguing substitute for driving in, in, in those kinds of trips. But as I say, I, I think the economics of, of building it to the kind of, of very precise tolerances needed uh, and whether people would be comfortable in a windowless uh, capsule uh, going several hundred miles per hour uh, without being able to see where they're going and so forth. Uh, human factors things are also unknowns. Um, presentations I've seen suggest there will be all kinds of video, uh, which, which might be fine. Um, but you know, we don't know until, until we have real prototypes that, uh, that people can experiment with. But one aspect of it that doesn't care about windows is freight. And I think if you have a line between Denver and Chicago and Chicago mm-hmm. and Atlanta and Washington and New York, you have freight moving between these large areas, and that could revolutionize how we get our packages from Amazon. Yeah, that, that could indeed. Uh, although it, none of the, none of the uh, 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 projects that I have seen, and I've seen a number of presentations and articles, uh, have focused on freight, and certainly today, um, large-scale shipping depends on standardized uh, uh, shipping containers. And uh, those are big, long, rectangular boxes, uh, 40 feet for ocean-going and typically 53 feet for domestic rail and, and truck. And uh, none of the Hyperloop designs looks uh, uh, like it's contemplating anything like that. So uh, whether there'd be enough volume for small packages to fit into these uh, tube-type things, uh, 
remains to be seen. Uh, uh, the, the folks at Amazon and and other uh, and and you know other sellers of merchandise uh, would have to weigh in on that, and I don't know what what they're thinking is if they're thinking about this at all. And finally, you've been generous with your time so much, Bob. I appreciate it. Bob Poole, Director of Transportation Policy at the Reason Foundation. Let's talk about there's a rebuild going on at Denver International Airport 5. I think it's $5 billion. They're spending a lot of money to rebuild the inside of Denver International Airport. Right. There has been talk about, uh, at least in Congress, from certain uh, Congress people uh, about eliminating air travel. I, I, I can't ever see that going away. What, what is the future of air travel and <laughs> I, uh, of airports? Right. I think the future of air travel is is very bright. I mean, the, all the statistics show uh, steadily rising growth, particularly in international travel. And you're not going to build a, a hyperloop across the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> uh, I think I think it's, it's a lot of fanciful talk uh, going on about that. Uh, now, clearly, uh, um, the uh, aviation industry um, has a, an emissions problem that uh, is not going to go away. There's a lot of work going on on biofuels that uh, uh, the hope is to be able to make affordable biofuels that would be carbon neutral. Um, but that's uh, still a very much a work in progress. Uh, there's an international agreement that's starting out voluntary that uh, calls for uh, uh, airlines to offset uh, the miles, <laughs> passenger miles flown with some kind of, of uh, offset arrangement. Well, they collect a fee from passengers and pay for, uh, uh, let's say, Brazil not to cut down the Amazon forest and so <laughs> forth. Those are just, again, works in progress. Uh, we'll, we'll see. But I cannot imagine. I mean, the benefits of air travel are so great, especially international, that uh, I think there's a long, robust future for it. Bob, thank you so much for uh, spending uh, this last hour or so with us here on the uh, podcast. Uh, can't thank you enough for uh, all your expertise. Uh, thanks very much, Jason. It was great fun to do. Well, that was great. I'm telling you, that was really, really good. I'm sad that Joseph missed this uh, this interview. Uh, Joseph is still, by the way, if you're wondering, uh, on hiatus. Uh, I think he's still going to be out for the next several weeks, maybe until the end of May. I I don't quite know anymore about good old Joseph. Anyway, uh, that was a really good conversation, and I'm glad that Bob had the uh, time to uh, spend with us here. Again, his uh, book is called Rethinking America's Highways, a 21st Century Vision for Better Infrastructure, and it's available uh, on Amazon and anywhere you might find interesting books. Bob Poole again. Uh, next week, I'm going to have a in-studio guest, Andy Bosselman. He's with Streets Blogs Denver. I've had a, uh, well, I had a feud with a previous editor of Streets Blog Denver, but not with Andy, and that's great because Andy offered to come on in, and I said, sure, let's have you in, and it'd be great to talk transit, to talk uh, driving, transit versus driving, really, uh, as we're going to talk with uh, Streets Blogs Denver about all that uh, Andy does and uh, really the ad he, he really advocates for the pedestrian, which would be great because... Joseph is not here, and then Andy can really uh, fill in that, uh, that that role for us. So anyway, we'll speak with Andy next week, and it should be really, really interesting. Thanks again for uh, being here on the show. If you ever need to get a hold of me, you can on my Twitter handle, at Denver7Traffic. You can always shoot an email to the show, the Driving a Crazy Podcast at gmail.com, and you can find all those links on the description. Remember to like, repeat, and rinse. 
No, I don't think that's quite right. Uh, like, uh, rate, and review, and repeat. There you go. Uh, especially if you're on the old Apple Podcast and listening to us there. Thanks again for being here. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring. Happy motoring.